Good morning, Hillcrest. My name is Bruce Davis, and I have the joy and privilege of working with those guys. So you're, you're all kind of scary. I take my glasses off, so you're kind of fuzzy. I won't see you so much. I'm used to seeing kids, and it's, it's more my speed. Um, again, I, I've been teaching kids for about 25 years or so, 30 years. Um, and as I've shared before, if you were here in February, I, I gave the message then. And I am a terrible introvert and engineer, a kind of a very ordered person, but with the kids, it, it kind of all unflows, or unhinges, I guess, sometimes. Um, I've been told I have a gift from, from God on teaching and to not use it with the kids. Um, I, have a, I have a heart for um, would be stealing from God, says how I look at it. So I look at it as giving back and using the gifts that I'm provided. So again, I, I uh, was, was here in February, um, we, and we looked at, uh, at a passage. I've been asked again, so... I shared this first service. Uh, there's an old adage, first time, you know, early married couples, and your wife asks you to do the laundry, and if you do a bad job that first time and everything comes out pink, you're never asked to do it again. I didn't mess up enough the first time, so David did ask me again, um, and I guess I said yes. But I have a question before we get going, and it's one that, uh, that may seem a little odd. Um, it may not be as applicable today, but have you ever had a hero or role model in your life? Um, now it might be a social influencer. You would say, I, w- I want to be like them. I want to emulate them. Um, I grew up in central Illinois, um, Illinois River Valley, about midway between Chicago and St. Louis. Uh, and growing up, I was a baseball player. So first grade and on, all the way through high school, I played ball. Um, and baseball was life. The kids have asked me before, well, what about soccer? And I say, soccer didn't exist then. Um, baseball was what I did. And a role model that I had during that time period, I, I was a middle infielder, uh, shortstop and second base, um, was from the Big Red Machine. Um, anyone my age probably remembers this. Uh, it was Cincinnati Reds. Again, I, say, I grew up in central Illinois. And half my family and friends were Cubs fans, and half were Cardinals fans, and I was a Reds fan, obviously. Uh, They were broadcast, but being young and impressionable, the one person that stood out to me was somebody called Charlie Hustle, was his nickname. You know who I'm talking about? It's Pete Rose. He played third base. On the field, he gave his all. Uh, He was tenacious. He was aggressive in terms of base running. Uh, Everyone, including me, wanted to do the head first slides. If you've ever seen him, we were discouraged from doing so. You know, slide old school, feet first. Um, but, but that was the, the type of play, leave it all in the field kind of play. Um, so that, that was a role model for me growing up. Uh, years later, when I was a, an adult, um, we, we find that maybe his personal life wasn't one that would match how he played on the field. Um, and, and unfortunately, sometimes our role models and heroes when they are earthly heroes, um, aren't 100% reliable. So we look at that, and a lot of times what we do is we're influenced by those around us. We also have to think, who are we influencing around us on the side, the other side of that coin? But as we look into our story today, I want to try and take that picture. So have that overriding question in your mind, heroes, role models, and what does it mean, and what should it look like? 
Because we've been looking at Luke, the book of Luke this year. We started about a year ago or so, somewhere in there after James. And right now, we are firmly in the teachings of the king. So we're looking at Jesus through the eyes of Luke, a historian. I love reading Luke. I love reading Acts, very ordered, methodical books of the Bible. But we're looking at what Luke is describing of Jesus' life. We've heard him call the disciples. Last time I was here, I got to share the message of calling Levi a tax collector. Heard him call four fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Uh, We hear the miracles, the teaching. Jesus is always about the kingdom of God. Everything he says and does is about that. And this week, um, David broadened my, my picture. Normally I come up, and last time I was here, it was a Meals with Jesus. This time he gave me a meal with kind of an appetizer and a dessert and a post-coffee kind of thing. So the scripture is a little bit longer this time. Um, but in the middle of it is a meal with Jesus. And we really want to look at, um, really, meals Jesus ate, who ate with him, and why it all matters to us today. Um, this is an interesting one. We're looking at Luke uh, 9. But I'm going to share this. We're going to look at a miracle and a meal that is actually the only miracle other than the resurrection that I see in all four Gospels. This is shared in Luke 9. We see it in Matthew 14, Mark 6, and John 6. All four Gospels recorded this miracle. It impacted each one of the disciples that much. So as we get into it, let me just read through the the text. It's rather long. Uh, 17 verses doesn't seem like a lot. Normally, kids, sometimes I say, buckle up. This one might get rough. Buckle up. We might get going. And let's take a look at at, uh, Luke. I will put this on so I can actually see a little bit easier. So, starting in Luke 9, 10 to 11. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned of it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he, Jesus, said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that he was, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God, emphatically. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And as he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of God the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some here, some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. As you see, it's a rather involved text that goes both sides of a meal. What I'm going to try and do is, is peel it back to take a look at this. What Jesus is doing is modeling the kingdom life before the disciples. And he invites us into his mission with the same confidence and bold belief. So I hope throughout the course of today, if I stay on track and don't get sidetracked, right, kids? We'll get to the point where we can look and see what Jesus is conveying and what it means to us. So let me pray for us before we dig in. So, Father God, it's so good uh, to be before you, to rely on you. I pray that, uh, again, I, I do not get in the way. I don't add or take away from your message, Lord, that uh, your truth is spoken clearly to the, to the audience here, Lord, to Hillcrest, and that you are glorified through our time together. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so last week, David did a nice job, and he talked about something. He talked about the disciples. Now, remember, the disciples were those called by Jesus. I already mentioned some by name. There were fishermen. There was a tax collector. Jesus chose people and basically said, follow me, and they did. Last time I was here, we talked about Levi. Levi left everything, followed Jesus, and then invited the other tax collectors in to participate and experience Jesus. They're called as disciples, but last week we see a turn. You see, they had spent time with Jesus. They had seen the miracles. They had experienced the power, and they heard the teaching, the parables, saw the healing. Last week, David shared the 12 were gathered, And Jesus sends them out. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases and sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So Jesus did several things. He sent the disciples. He said, go. He gave them power, tell, and heal. Jesus did a switch here. Rather than saying, bring people back to me so that I can show them, He empowered the disciples to go and tell. And that's exactly what they did. When David left last week, we hear the disciples have gone out. This week, we get to hear the rebound. We hear the disciples returning. And we see a different word used now in Luke. We see returning as apostles. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done. Can you imagine the excitement? You just went out and did what Jesus said. You experience life, kingdom life, on your own. You're coming back. You're ready to debrief. But what's that word apostle? It's a word we don't really have in English. There's kind of a reason because it's a Greek word. Um, My Greek friends over here will know this one. It really means one sent forth with orders, with a messenger, a delegate. Apostle, one sent. Disciple, learner. So the disciples were gathered to Jesus to learn, and Jesus sent them as apostles, empowered, in this case, with miraculous power, his power to heal, impact the world around them. 
So the word now is we're looking at apostles returning. And the apostles are excited. On the return, the apostles are ready to debrief. They're ready to tell Jesus everything that happened. And what they choose to do is they're going to withdraw apart to a town called Bethsaida. All right? Now, Bethsaida is actually across the Sea of Galilee. It's on the Sea of Galilee. And now remember, who were the four first disciples called? Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Kids, do you remember any what, what they did? I'll give you a hint. They were not tax collectors, but they were fishermen. They spent time in the lake. They know what's going on. So guess what? They're going to take off by boat to go to Bethsaida. Now, this is interesting because has anyone ever, anyone here been to Sea of Galilee? Yes, we have some. It's the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It looks like this. And if we look at the map, Bethsaida is on the north end. Can't quite see it, but it's up there where the Jordan River flows in to the Sea of Galilee. Now, the thing is, home base for Jesus was in Capernaum. It's about five or six miles away. Now, unless you're a runner, five or six miles probably doesn't mean anything to you, the distance-wise. But the Sea of Galilee is kind of the shortcut. You take the road across the sea to get to where you're going. To give you an idea how big it is, anyone been to Lake Mendota in Madison? That one we probably have a better feel for. It's about twice as big, twice as wide, twice as long. And to give you an idea of the distance that you would travel, if you're at Memorial Union and you wanted to go to, to Warner Park where the fireworks used to be, that's about five, six miles. It's about the same distance we're looking between Capernaum and Bethsaida. So Jesus is ready to go with his disciples. And we learn in the other Gospels, Matthew 14 specifically, they travel by boat. Mark 6 tells us the reason why they're going is to Jesus brings them to rest, to recover. They've been out on the mission field, and he wants to hear and give them rest. So they travel across the, the Sea of Galilee by boat to, to Bethsaida, which brings us to our first point. You see, the disciples are ready to wait, rest, recover. As an introvert, that's exactly what I'm going to do after this service. I'm going to go home and hide out somewhere in a very dark corner and just <laughs> blanket myself up. Now, I feel like that, that's what I would want to do if I was a disciple, to relax to debrief, to understand what happened. But watch what happens. Jesus isn't about that. Jesus is mission-minded. It's our first point. He's living out the kingdom of God. It's not a, uh, you know, I'm not on the book right now. I think I'm going to... No, it's living out the kingdom of God each and every day, each and every minute. Because what happens is the disciples and Jesus are going across the lake in the boat. The people can see where they're going. It's only five or six miles. Guess what they do? They walk around. By the time Jesus actually gets to Bethsaida, the shortcut, there's a huge crowd of people. Because what they've done is when they went through a town, they said, hey, Jesus is going over there. You want to come? Sure. They kept following. And by the time Jesus lands, there's a huge crowd, a huge number of people. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him. And watch what Jesus does here. He welcomes them. And spoke to them of the kingdom of God. Isn't this just what he had the disciples 
go and do. Go and tell people of the kingdom of God. He never changes with Jesus. He is always mission-minded. Not only telling of the kingdom of God, Jesus also reveals his power by curing those who need healing. You see, Jesus is all about the mission of God the Father, proclaiming the kingdom of God, releasing the captives, healing those in need. It doesn't change. If we look at how Jesus reacted, do we do the same thing? Anyone get tired and say, you know, that's for someone else to do? Maybe tomorrow I can do it. We're not Jesus. But I want you to think about what Jesus does as we live our lives. Which brings us to the second point. Because as they're there, we learn the day is going on. Jesus has been teaching and healing. And the day is late. We see Jesus now get our second point, opportunity-oriented. As an engineer, I tend to look at the world as problems to solve. There's things that need to be fixed or new design that needs to go in. I look at it as a problem. Jesus sees an open door rather than the obstacle. Looking at those opportunities instead of a problem is a change of the mind. It's a change of how you perceive things. And that's our second point. Opportunity-oriented. How does Jesus display this? Well, the day, again, is getting late. And what happens is the day began to wear away, and the 12 came to Jesus. You see, they are like the engineers in me, seeing the problem. Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. Now, you can look at this as the disciples might be saying, okay, finally, we can get rid of this crowd, have Jesus for ourselves. I don't necessarily look at it that way. I look at it as Jesus has modeled it for them. And the disciples see there is a need bigger than they can, they can fix. The disciples see this. There's a huge crowd. It's late. They have no food, nowhere to stay. So how can they solve the problem? The only way they can do it is by having Jesus, who the people listen to, tell them to go. It's not about having Jesus for themselves. I think a lot of it, the disciples are really looking out for those people. But watch what Jesus does. Jesus is still teaching, still healing, and he does something really strange. He turns to the disciples and says this. He said to them, you give them something to eat. Wait a minute. Was Jesus not listening here? They're in the middle of nowhere. The disciples have no food. There's a bunch of people. Where are we going to get it? It's exactly what they do. We have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. Now, I read in the other gospel accounts, they say 200 didari, 200 days wages, wouldn't be enough for the people to get just a little bit of bread to eat. The disciples are saying, this is impossible, Jesus. There's no way this can turn out good. What are we to do? Watch what Jesus says. He says, 
we have five loaves and two, two fish. When we read John's account, we learn this is from a boy's lunch. Now, I would argue this is probably a mom who packed a lunch for a boy to go see Jesus because moms, you know, boys really forget things almost instantly after they've done it. But they look at this meager provision that they have and they say, how are we going to divide this among 5,000 people? No, 5,000 men. There's more. How many kids were there? Kids? Do you know how many kids there were? Don't know. Do you know how many moms there were? Don't know. Were there more or less than 5,000? More. We only know 5,000 men were counted. Watch what Jesus does. Because he says this. Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Jesus is taking them and moving them into intentional, intimate settings, about 50 each. I don't see Fred here, but that sounds like a small group to me. (laughs) About that, maybe a little big. The idea is this. It's intimate, it's small, it's relational. Jesus has them sit down. And they did so. Now, Jesus could have done any number of things to solve the problem here. He's God. Could he have taken and filled their stomachs miraculously so they were not hungry anymore? Yes. Could he have miraculously sent manna from heaven? Happened in the Old Testament for 40 years. Yes. Could he have miraculously brought in food in the people's bags that they didn't realize they had? Yes. It's not what he does. Watch how Jesus does this. Because he takes the five loaves and two fish, looks up to heaven, and says a blessing over them. Not blessing the food, Blessing God's provision, the Father's provision of providing it. Then he broke the loaves and he gives them to the disciples to set before the crowd. See, Jesus intentionally does something. He doesn't miraculously take care of their appetites. He involves the disciples to carry it to the people. Now again, how many disciples were there? Twelve. Groups of 50 each. Do the math. The disciples are busy guys going back and forth between groups. Constantly. Can you imagine the disciples seeing this? Where things are miraculously appearing. Taking it before the crowd. And we learn that they ate and were satisfied. Not only were they satisfied, there were leftovers. Anyone like leftover pizza? I think it's like the best part of, yes. Leftovers. And not just a random amount of leftovers. There were 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Why do you think there were 12? 12 disciples. Jesus intentionally does this because watch what he does. He provides what is needed and more. More so that the disciples can see the provision. God provides the need for the need and more to make the impact in the disciples' lives. I think this is one reason why it shows up in all four Gospels. They personally experienced this. We saw mission-minded looking outward 
and ready to, to preach the kingdom of God. We see the opportunity-oriented, where now it's not a problem, it's an open door. We come to the third point, misunderstood Messiah. This one seems like an odd change. And again, I have four mini-messages here. I can probably make the fifth one out of it if I need to. Recognizing Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King. Lord, providing, Jehovah Jireh. King, ruler, Savior. We understand it. Jesus is all three together. Having a clear picture of who Jesus is gives power to believers to do his will. If we look at the misunderstood Messiah, the way Jesus shows us this in our, in our text is now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And Jesus, he asked them, saying, who do the crowds say that I am? We, heard, we saw this last week in David's message. The disciples answer, John the Baptist. Some others say, Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old have risen, has risen. You see, Jesus is asking the disciples, what's the word on the street? Who do people think I am? And the people think, well, he's, he's important. He's, he must be a prophet. He has power. He, Elijah has power. Um, he, John the Baptist talked about the kingdom of God. Maybe he's one of these. I don't really know. They don't have a clear picture of who Jesus is. Jesus does something now. He asks the crowds who the crowds think he is. Now Jesus asks the disciples, who do you think I am? Do you have a clear picture of me? Do we have a clear picture of Jesus? Do we have that confident belief of who he is? God incarnate, able to do all things. And Peter jumps in and says, you are the Christ of God. Peter knows. He says, you're God's son. You are God. I believe it. And watch what Jesus does here. Wouldn't you want to tell everyone if you knew that? Watch what Jesus says. He says, he strictly charges them and commands them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. There's a key word in here that we'll get to in a moment because when Jesus says this in Luke and now we look in both Matthew and Mark gospel accounts, we hear that Peter takes Jesus aside and says, Jesus, that doesn't make sense. I'll not, I won't let that happen. You're not going to be killed. When Peter says that to Jesus, Jesus rebukes Peter and says, No, get behind me, Satan. That's not the will of God. The key word is must. Jesus is saying, This has been told before time. Before the creation of the earth, these things were in place for God to redeem humanity. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, be raised. This is God's plan of redemption. It was fulfillment that Jesus is talking about. The reason he says, tell no one yet, 
We could put the word yet in there because it hasn't yet been fulfilled in completion. We'll see that in how many weeks, months, David, will we get to that one? Somewhere. This year, 23, yes. <laughs> now, before then. So we see this as, do we have a clear picture of who Jesus is? Because it affects what we do and how we live our lives. If we think of Jesus as a teacher, which is true, it's insufficient to describe who he is. I want to get to the last point, and this is a big one I shared in first service. I could probably spend two messages on this, this point alone. The last one is selfless sacrifice. And we see this in the final part of our text. It's the attitude of an apostle. I've already described what an apostle is, right? It's someone sent with a message, sent with orders. But what does that look like? What does the attitude of an apostle look like? We know who an apostle is, but what's driving them? Let's look to the text. Jesus said this. Probably one of the toughest pieces of scripture. I could spend, like I said, a couple weeks on this one. And if he said to all, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, for my sake, will save it. These seven words are pretty hard to take. Kids, if I were to say, deny, is that a good word? You went to mom and mom said, she denied you. That would be, she said, no. Oftentimes we look at deny as a negative. Something you can't do. I tend to think of it a little differently. Does anyone here ride their bike to church today? No? No one? Could you ride your bike to church today? Yes. The thing is, there is something more powerful that you relied on. The minivan. Yes? Deny, I look at it as the positive. Rely on Jesus' power. It's not necessarily just saying no. The Pharisees did that. The Pharisees said... You can't lift so much on the Sabbath. You can't go far, farther than this distance. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's a checkbox of no's. Denying yourself isn't saying no to everything. It's relying on Jesus' power to provide. The second world I want to dig into is take up. Jesus makes reference of the cross. The cross was the picture of... Every disciple knew this. It's the method of execution perfected by the Romans. Didn't invent it. They perfected it over about three centuries. Take up means voluntarily. No one is going to take up the cross. The cross was placed on someone and accused for punishment, made to carry it. This is the mindset of an apostle. Deny yourself, rely on Jesus, take up voluntarily, willingly. Take up your cross. The cross is a one-way trip. The cross was a death sentence, physically. 
See, Jesus is saying two things at the same time here that match up beautifully. Deny yourself, rely on me, and die to self, rely on me. Different pictures of the same thing. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy a good meal. What it means is rely on Jesus and don't self-affirm and self-promote. We know far too many people that are self-promoters. It's all about me. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Take up your cross daily. That's a renewal, a continual process. It's not a one and done. It's not one of these things that you say, you know what, today I'm just going to take up my cross and now tomorrow I'm not going to take up that. I'm going to do my own thing. This is a continuous process. And how does this all fit together? Deny himself, take up his cross daily. Well, it's an others-centered attitude. That's the attitude of the apostle. We have a verse in our family, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. It's looking others-centered rather than self-centered. And then Jesus says, and follow me. Don't just do all these things. Follow me. What did Jesus just do disembarking on the boat? He got out. There was a huge crowd. Did he say, go home. I don't want to talk to you. He taught the kingdom of God and healed those who need curing. Now Jesus does this. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's that balance thing. You know, if I just do more things for myself, I'm, I'm better off. But Jesus is saying, are you really better off if you're doing things just for yourself? It's that other-centered side that Jesus is saying. It's an upside-down world that we looked at before. Last series. And then Jesus does this. He throws a warning out there. Because all of this is looking at that selfless sacrifice, the attitude of the apostle. And now he says, this is a warning that you need to understand. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself? Jesus is saying, the self-centered person versus the other-centered, what does it matter if you gain everything, if you lose your life, yourself? And then he says these words. He uses the word ashamed. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Kids, have you ever felt ashamed? What does shame feel like? It feels like that nervous stomach, uh, fear. Is it a good feeling or a bad feeling? Bad feeling. Ashamed. Of me. See, Jesus is saying this. Can you be ashamed of something you don't believe in? I would argue no. If you don't believe in something, what does it matter? Jesus is not talking about not believing him, unbelievers, having no belief. He's talking about a different kind of belief. He's saying an apathetic belief. 
a belief like, yes, I believe, but I'm not willing to really do much. Apathy. Nah. A timid belief. A belief that is rooted in fear. You know what? I can't go and share anything about Jesus because people might think odd of me. Is fear driving that? It does for a lot of people. What will people think? They won't look the same at me. I'll be different. A fearful belief or a timid belief, I think, is where Jesus is pointing this. He who is ashamed of me. How about an intermittent belief? An on-again, off-again belief. I'm on a Sunday morning going to church, so everything is great. Uh, it's a Tuesday, 5 o'clock, ready to leave. I'm really irritated. This isn't a I-can-pick-and-choose belief. Jesus is saying, this is what I want to see in my followers. The attitude of an apostle, a bold, confident belief. One that stands the test of time and trial. Looking back to James, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of any kinds. It's a bold and confident belief that Jesus is asking us to live out in our lives. And he wraps this up with a promise. He says this, but truly, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And I'm going to do something. There's fewer kids this time, but I'm going to do something the kids despise. To find out the answer to this, you have to come back next week. (laughs) To be continued. Enough for one day, enough meat and potatoes and appetizer and coffee afterwards. I want to leave you with something, though. Hopefully, David will dig into that one next week. We'll see that come to life. I want to leave you with five points. So I had four message points. I have five closing points. Uh, Kind of a takeaway. What do you do with this? Because we saw mission-minded as Jesus driving. We saw opportunity-oriented, selfless sacrifice. And we see, or misunderstood Messiah and selfless sacrifice. What does that mean to our lives? We're called to have a mission-ready mentality. 1 Peter 3 says, always be ready to give the reason for the hope that is in you. We go through life too often missing opportunities, not ready. An opportunity presents itself usually when you least expect it. Sometimes it's nothing more than the way you act in the case of circumstances. You stand out because... You respond differently than the world would. And it might spark a question from someone. Why do you do that? It happened to me in grad school. Always be ready to give the reason for the hope that is in you. Mission-minded, mission-ready mentality. Second thing I want you to remember on this is God powerfully provides the meal. We saw that. We saw Jesus powerfully providing the food for everyone. When we look at the scripture, we see these. It's the word. Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. We see Deuteronomy, man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Jeremiah, I ate your word. 
We see in Psalm 119, 103, your word is sweeter than honey. We've talked about this, kids. It's God's word is the meal. God provides it. Just like Jesus provided the food for all of the 5,000, he provides for us. What he calls us to do is to serve it to others. The disciples didn't just pick and choose and say, well, you know, that that group over there is a little different. I'm not going to take them. The disciples took it to all. We're not supposed to have preferential treatment. With generosity and compassion, Philippians 2 said uh, another point of of looking at it where you're looking at the, the, the others as well. And you have no control of the appetite of who you're serving. I'm using a little metaphorical terms here for kids, so we're adult level here. The word, like last two, three weeks ago, where we saw the soils, the word doesn't change. It's the soil. We don't hear anything about how much each one of the people ate in the group of 5,000. We do hear that they all were satisfied. So it liberates us from that fear of failure. Luke 8 is the parable of the soils. And lastly, how do you put this all together? How does it all fit into one package? I look at it as Jesus is a reliable role model and hero. We can never attain what he showed us, but we can strive to emulate it. We won't be let down. The attitude of an apostle is one that follows Jesus wholeheartedly and is ready to serve when called. Let me wrap up with prayer, and then we'll turn over to Jack. Thank you. So, bow with me. Father God, we just uh, commit this day to you. We thank you for uh, your provision. We thank you for your word, your truth. Pray that, um, that uh, you are brought glory by our, our conduct, our actions, and our attitudes as we leave this place. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.